Good evening, Grace Bible Church. Such a joy to be here with you again. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I preached a sermon on uh, misconceptions of sanctification, and um, we're going to be covering more of that tonight. It's been a really busy and fun weekend for the street family. My Today is my father's 70th birthday, so he is actually watching live stream, I think, right now, so I'm going to give a shout out to him, and uh, so this has been a, a joyous week for us as we celebrated him yesterday and had a big party and lots of cake and lots of fun, so. Well, as I said, last time that, um, probably like three or four weeks ago, I preached a sermon on misconceptions of sanctification, and uh, I messed with your theology a little bit, so I'm sorry, but I'm not really sorry. Uh, Last time, uh, we talked about five misconceptions that we often believe are true about sanctification or maybe true about sin, but are not necessarily true or at least not as accurate as we may have at first supposed. And I ended our time together saying that I had five more misconceptions to cover, and that's true. I did. So, here we are. Five more to go. I wasn't actually kidding about that. It was actually uh, really true. So we're going to cover that tonight. And um, the first five misconceptions that I originally put together in the first sermon um, really talk about the issue of sin. That was the kind of the main bent to those misconceptions. And um, these next five are really going to talk a lot about fruit-bearing, the fruit-bearing aspects of sanctification. And if you remember last time, there was a natural progression to these misconceptions. They kind of segued one to the next. Uh, If you believe misconception number one, then you're maybe likely prone to believe misconception number two. If you believe misconception number two, this naturally leads to misconception number three and so forth. So what you'll find, I think, in this one as well is that they're going to naturally kind of progress one to the the next in this next um, these next five misconceptions. And again, like I talked about, the, the first five really had to do with sin, and the second five, these five tonight, are really going to have a lot to do with the fruit-bearing aspects of sanctification. Uh, nevertheless, I've decided to entitle my sermon Misconceptions of Sanctification Part 2. So it's just kind of the continuation of the first five, uh, or the clever title that David came up with this morning, Sin Came Off the Ark 2, Part 2, Part 2. So there you go. Um, of course, we have a lot to cover, and it seems like whenever I end up preaching on a big topic like this, we have way more to cover than we actually have time for. So we're going to dive right in, and let me review the first five misconceptions with you just briefly at the beginning, and then we'll get on to the next five. Misconception number one, just as a reminder. Misconception number one, the flesh is the same as sin. The flesh is the same as sin. It's easy to equate the two. It is. I know that personally. But biblically, they're not technically the same thing. Flesh is actually, biblically, a better definition is really defined as man without divine help. Man without divine help. Flesh is weak. That's definitely depicted in Scripture. It's non-divine. That's another good way to describe it. Uh, Flesh is unable. There's an inability to it. But flesh is not sin, not technically speaking. 
But even so, we talked about how flesh without divine help, without divine assistance, inevitably leads to sin. It inevitably will lead to sin if you have no divine help. And that led us to our next misconception, misconception number two. Sin exists in our hearts even when we aren't sinning. And I called this the gunk model, okay, the gunk model, where, um, which does have some true facets to it. Uh, and the gunk model is, um, can be helpful, but it can fail also to comprehensively define how sin actually functions in day-to-day life. And it can lead us into believing the notion that sin is more like a static object in the heart that sits in the spiritual recesses recess of our hearts and uh, it, throughout, at least throughout the entirety of our lives. And rather, we saw that Ezekiel 36 promised long ago that the new covenant would actually grant us a new heart. Either the old is gone and the new has come, like 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, right? Either the old is gone and the new has come, or the old is still here and the new is not quite here. But under the new covenant, we don't have technically what we call like a mixed heart under the new covenant. We do still, though, and this is where we see this with this fight with sin, we have what's called a realm of flesh that hangs on. There's a realm of flesh with which we daily battle against sin. But our heart... Our heart has actually been transformed under the the new covenant. Our heart now has the ability to help us to walk in the realm of the spirit and not in the realm of the flesh. And I should say our heart has the ability. It's really, right, right, the, the power of the spirit through our heart gives us, through that new heart, gives us the ability to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. And that segued into our third misconception. Our third misconception, I can walk in the flesh and in the spirit at the same time. But that notion is very antithetical, if you really look at the text, to Galatians 5.16 and 2 Peter 1.10 and a host of other New Testament passages. And we actually saw those last time. And both Peter and Paul, at least in those two passages specifically, definitively claim that you will never walk or stumble in the flesh when you practice godly living in the power of the new covenant spirit. When you're walking in the spirit, you're not walking in the flesh. And when you're walking in the flesh, you're not walking in the spirit. They become two mutually exclusive realms. And that naturally naturally led to our fourth misconception, misconception number four, the spirit can only help me to defeat some sins in my life, but not all of them. The Spirit can only help me to defeat some sins in my life, but not all of them. 2 Peter 1 verse 3 actually makes very clear that his divine power has given us, given you all things for godly living. Not some things, all things. And then finally, misconception number five, it's inevitable that I will sin. It's inevitable. It's just going to happen against my voluntary will. It's just going to happen. No, technically that's not actually true, biblically speaking. Under the new covenant, it is never inevitable that you will sin. It's never inevitable. Paul's pursuit of sanctification we saw in Philippians chapter 3 verse 12 and the following verses there indicate that sin doesn't have to happen in our lives. And the wonder, the glorious wonder of the new covenant 
is that anytime you walk in the Spirit, you are a momentary picture of all that God wants you to be. You are a momentary picture of all that God wants you to be when you're walking in the Spirit. But the key word in there is momentary, isn't it? It's momentary. In one moment, we may walk in the flesh, and in the next moment, we start walking, excuse me, one moment, we start walking in the Spirit, and then the next moment, we're walking in the flesh. We find that on a regular basis. And so it's hard, because sanctification is now really about the pursuit of the longevity of walking in the Spirit. That's sanctification, the consistency of walking in the Spirit. But now let's turn a corner. Let's turn a corner corner to the next five misconceptions because we need to start building a biblical logic for how to walk in the Spirit with longevity. I think that's what many of you had mentioned to me after the sermon was like, okay, so you said you were going to talk about how to walk in the Spirit. I hope that these misconceptions will help to address a lot of that. We need to address these five misconceptions and they have a lot to do, as I mentioned, with fruit, the fruit-bearing aspects of sanctification. All right, so here's the first misconception for you. You ready? For those of you who are taking notes. First misconception, or we can say misconception number six. Misconception number six, continuing with the last sermon here. Not sinning, okay, get ready for this. Not sinning is fruit-bearing. Not sinning is fruit-bearing. Oh, Some of you are like, this is messing with my theology again. Okay, hold on. We may not believe this misconception on paper, perhaps, but it is something that I think that we even just presume, maybe even the back of our minds as we're practicing daily living. Sometimes we just kind of get this idea in our heads, I just need to stop sinning. Then I'll be all that God wants me to be. I just need to stop sinning. But that kind of thinking can easily ignore the put-on principle that you find in Ephesians chapter 4, right? Laying aside the old practices and putting on the new. Sometimes we live the Christian life as though the sum total of sanctification is simply to put off sin. We wouldn't say it that way, but we live it that way. But that's only part of it. Rather, we should also be putting on righteousness. I've heard my dad preach this many times, and I have to bring him up since it's his 70th birthday today. I've heard him preach this many times on a uh, series that he calls the four rules of communication in relationships from Ephesians chapter 4, actually. And it is impactful, I think, and insightful to be reminded of some of these truths. Yeah, he asks in uh, this series and some of the sermons that he preaches on this, when is a thief no longer a thief? When is a thief, a robber, no longer a robber? And the world would often say, oh, it's when he stops stealing. That's when he stops being a thief. (laughs) It's so funny. My dad says, no, that's just a thief between jobs. (laughs) Right? It's true. There's so much truth in that. No, biblically speaking, Ephesians 4 speaking, a thief stops being a thief when he starts giving generously. 
Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Go ahead and turn over there. I'll start reading it as you're getting over there. You'll, you'll, you'll catch up with me. Let the one who steals no longer steal, it says. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Let the one who steals no longer steal, but rather let him labor. You hear that terminology? Let him labor, working with his own hands that which is good. Why? Why does he need to labor and work with his own hands? Well, he tells us, so that he might have something to give or to share with the one who has need. You hear the giving in that? A thief needs to give to change from being a thief. When can we be sure that a person has truly changed? When can we be sure of that? That they actually have changed in their life? It's not when the person just stops doing the sin he once used to do. He just stops in his tracks. It's when he starts bearing fruit that reverses or goes the opposite direction from the sin he was doing. Think about it this way. When does a slanderer, or you could say like a reviler, or a cursing man stop being a man with a rotten mouth? Biblically speaking, it's not just when he stops cursing, is it? That's just a reviler who's been censored. Okay? Biblically speaking, he's no longer a reviler when he starts speaking grace and love into people's lives. When he starts speaking grace and love into people's lives. You can look at the very next verse there in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. He says, let no rotten word proceed out of your mouth. Rotten. It's not, there's some translations that kind of water that down and smooth that out. I've, you know, I know I'm very familiar with the New American Standard that says no unwholesome word, right? But the word is literally rotten, which is really interesting because it's giving us some fruit-bearing terminology. Rotten fruit, right? That's the idea. Let no rotten fruit proceed out of your mouth, but let this only proceed out of your mouth is going to be what he's basically saying. Let this proceed only what is good for the edification of the need, for the building up of the need. Why? Why? So that it may give grace to those who hear. That's the goal. That's the goal of a man who's used to cursing, blaspheming, reviling with his mouth, is that he may give grace to those who hear. That's the goal. Not just to stop. Not just to stop the blasphemy. Listen, we know a sinner is changed under the new covenant. Again, not when he stops the sin in its tracks, but when he rather moves with all momentum in the opposite direction in righteousness. How do we know that Zacchaeus, that wee little man, changed from being a miserly, stealing, lying tax collector? How do we know? It's when he said to Christ, I'm not going to do that ever again, I promise. No, that's not, what it, that's not when we know that. No, his repentance was only confirmed when he bore fruit worthy of that repentance. And you're like, well, what fruit was that? Luke 19, verse 8 actually indicates what he says. Zacchaeus says, look, behold, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have extorted anyone of anything, I will pay back four times, fourfold. Which is fulfilling the law of Moses, which is um, very, um, very much exactly what he needs to be doing. 
It's only when he says that that Jesus confirms his repentance in verse 9. This is the very next verse after that. Jesus says, today, salvation has come to this house because also this one is a son of Abraham. Because this one is also a son of Abraham. Now, of course, Jesus kind of sounds like Jesus is saying, oh, he gave to the poor, therefore his deeds saved him. It sounds like that in the passage, but rather that's not true. Of course, what, what we see here is actually very instructive to us. It was necessary that Zacchaeus did this and showed this to validate the authenticity of his repentance. Otherwise, there's no way to double check that he actually truly repented. And you might wonder, well, why did Jesus say because he's also a son of Abraham? Why does he kind of tag that on at the end? It's kind of a random thing. Oh, that's cool. He's a son of Abraham too. That's great. But think about this. This is kind of really cool because this connects us to James chapter 2. Because in James chapter 2, it indicates that Abraham's faith was shown to be genuine by his works. Remember that? Right? So James is actually picking up on the logic of Jesus' interaction with Zacchaeus. And so, too, Zacchaeus' salvation was shown to be genuine because of his deeds of repentance. Abraham has always been the biblical model of true faith, but he was the model of true faith, and you actually see this a lot in Genesis, not because he was just like, man, he's just a man that just kind of believes wonderful things about God. That's actually true. But it's because he modeled his faith in works worthy of salvation. The works showed it. You see that even when he sacrifices Isaac, right? So yeah, he really believes. I believe you, Lord. But how do you know he really believes? It's when he goes and he literally is thrusting the knife at his son's chest. That's when you know that's genuine faith. In this way, all who walk in Abraham's footsteps of faith must model fruit-bearing. All must model fruit-bearing. It's not enough to just stop sinning. We must start bearing fruit. And again, I just want to reemphasize, the works don't save, but they are necessary to demonstrate the legitimacy of salvation. They are necessary, aren't they? Galatians 5, verses 22 through 23 is probably very dear to many of you. This is the list of the fruit of the Spirit, yes? It's not the list of, or the avoiding sin list of the Spirit, right? It's not just giving you things that you're not supposed to be doing and avoiding. It's the list of the fruit of the Spirit. Proactive things. God didn't redeem you and redeem me so that we would just stop sinning. He doesn't want you to just be innocent like Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden before the fall. That's not the ultimate goal. We're going to go beyond that. He wants you to bear fruit of righteousness. Now that you have the knowledge of good and evil, he wants you to not only retain that understanding, but now understand and live a full life of righteousness in light of that. Not sinning is not enough. Not sinning is not fruit-bearing. Fruit-bearing is essential to spirit-filled Christian living. And that leads us to our next misconception. Misconception number seven. 
and it's a big one, and perhaps a controversial one. So as my dad often says, buckle your seatbelts and put your crash helmets on. Okay, this is going to be a fun one. But I think you'll, you'll catch on right away. Misconception number seven. Godly desire by itself is fruit. Misconception number seven. Godly desire by itself is fruit. You're like, oh, okay. Now, at first, this might be like, hey, that kind of sounds heretical. Now, let me give me, give me a minute to explain this. Of course, godly desire is essential to Christian living. It's the backbone for all the fruit that we bear. Of course, that's true. So then, Jay, how can you say that godly desire is not fruit? Well, I didn't quite say it like that. Technically, I said, I use these terms, these words, by itself, by itself. Godly desire by itself, I would argue, is not fruit. It's not fruit. And actually, this should make a lot of sense to us. If you want to do something good, okay, just think about this for a second. If you want to do something good, but you don't do it, that's not fruit, right? I mean, literally, the very words contradict the definition of fruit-bearing. You admitted you didn't do it, right? You didn't follow through, so you didn't actually bear the fruit. It's like a tree that has thick, lush, green leaves. It wants to be a great fruit-bearing tree, but it has no fruit, You know, Jesus curses trees like that, you know. It was actually bearing leaves. It just wasn't bearing fruit. This is actually what boggles my mind with how many regard actually Romans 7. I know I keep coming back to that, but I wrote my thesis on it, so I feel validated that I can do that. No, I'm just kidding. No, actually, seriously, there are a lot of misconceptions that I think about Romans 7, I think that that can use correcting, and I want you to think about Romans 7 with me for a second. You're welcome to turn over there too if you want, but um, think about this. What are the main reasons, the best reasons, why? We tend to assume he's speaking as a New Testament Christian in this passage. What are the main reasons, the best reasons? Okay, just think about that in your own mind. I mean, there is the experiential argument, right? I closely relate with Paul's word. That feels like my experience. I get that one, right? I want to do good, but I'm not doing it. Yeah, yeah. Which I just have to say, listen, that's not an exegetical argument. That's not an argument you got from the Bible. It's just from your own experience. So it's not like it's wrong. It just needs to be completely deprioritized in the list of reasons why you would hold a view like that for Romans 7. When you really boil it down, and I've done a lot of reading on this, a lot of different scholars, It really comes down to one main exegetical reason why the Christian typically is held in Romans 7, and it's this. The person in Romans 7 has really good godly desires. It comes down to that big issue. Everything else can be subsumed underneath that. And then here's the big problem, because those desires are the only evidence for his Christianity in Romans 7. They're the only evidence that's there. Those desires by themselves become our standard for what it means to be a Christian. This actually happens. I think there are many that have actually led people down that path before. And to be clear, for many 
who do, I don't think that they actually believe that godly desire should ever be divorced from fruit bearing. I don't think that ever actually believe that, at least in our circles. That's not what they intend when they come to Romans 7. But nevertheless, I would argue that their own theology of this has actually created a contradiction in itself that needs reevaluation. That's what I would argue. And so here's what is often advocated by those who take the Christian view of Romans 7. Okay. Uh, someone may come and say, well, how do I know that I'm saved? Right? How do I know that I'm saved? How do I know that I'm a Christian? Well, do you recognize your sin as sin? Yeah, yeah, I do. Do you want to please God? Yeah, yeah, I, I do, I do. Well, that's Paul in Romans 7. Be encouraged. You're a Christian. You met all the qualifications for that passage. But hold on. Wait a minute. Catholics would actually technically agree to that too. You might be encouraging a Catholic in his own theology. An Orthodox Jew would very much agree with that. They recognize sin as sin. They understand the rights and the wrongs, right, of Scripture. They admit to wanting to please God. Sometimes they show even greater passion to do so than we do. You see, like, the, you know, in Judaism, how much they honor the scrolls. They kiss the scrolls. Paul indicates this, too, that Jews of his day have a zeal for God. Romans 10, 2, yeah? They have a zeal for God. Listen, zeal for God. That's a.k.a. godly zeal, godly desires. That's plain and simple. Be careful here when you rest your hope on godly desires as the true test of genuine faith. You are on very thin ice. You're on very thin ice. In fact, there's not a biblical passage that I know of that addresses genuine salvation by pointing you exclusively to godly desires. I don't know of one. That may sound strange to you, but I have not actually found one. But I know of plenty of New Testament passages that speak about fruit-bearing as the true evidence of genuine salvation. There are numerous passages. For instance, how do you know that you're grafted into Jesus, the vine, in John 15? John 15, verse 2. Every branch not bearing fruit... It says, actually, every branch in me, not bearing fruit, he takes it away. And every branch bearing fruit, he prunes it so that it should bear more fruit. Do you hear that? If you're not bearing fruit, if you're not bearing fruit, he actually pulls you out of the vine and he throws you into the pile for burning. Like, where'd you hear the burning part? Well, that's a couple verses down in verse 6. But everyone who is truly in the vine bears fruit, assumption, already. If he's really part of Christ, he's bearing fruit. And then God prunes you probably through trials and tribulations, right? And helps you to bear more fruit. Clearly, Jesus is saying, listen, at at least at this level, everyone in me bears fruit to one level or another. That's always true of true Christians. Godly desire without fruit is not fruit. Wanting to do good but not doing it is not evidence of salvation. And we can see why that would be, right? Because desires are extremely fickle. 
They're extremely fickle. You can't always trust them. Listen, this is very dangerous because this is the slippery slope that many in evangelical circles are sliding down. Experiential Christianity. There's this movement of free grace or hyper grace, as it's been called, theology. Just have strong desires for God. That's what it means to be a true Christian. That's salvation. Don't burden people with behavior and rules and laws. Hold on. Desires only. Desires are fickle. They fluctuate a lot in our lives, don't they? Just when even you get indigestion, your desires feel totally out of whack. They're not a stable means of testing genuine faith. Listen, I think we know that. I think we understand that. But the irony of Romans 7 is that really the only biblical evidence that we have for him being a Christian in Romans 7 is his godly desires to do good. But he admits every single time, I'm not doing it. Every single time. There's no fruit bearing in Romans 7 mentioned once. But if he's not doing good from his godly desires in Romans 7, then he's not bearing fruit, and therefore he's not meeting the New Testament standard of what it means to be a Christian. In fact, I often put it this way to my Roman students at the Master's University. So we talk about this in a discussion post. I say, okay, tell me, are the man's godly desires in Romans 7 spirit-driven? Are those godly desires in Romans 7 spirit-driven? And this puts them in a very difficult situation. Because if they answer, yeah, they're spirit-driven, then the begging question is, why then is he not able to bear fruit from them? Where's the fruit of the Spirit that should be coming from these spirit-driven desires? Where is it? Well, okay, they're, they're not spirit-driven. They're not spirit-driven godly desires then what remains in Romans 7 that demonstrates that he's even a Christian at all now if they're not spirit-driven godly desires? Even his godly desires aren't spirit-driven, then there's no evidence left in Romans 7 for the new covenant spirit. It's not even there anymore. It's completely gone. This is why I would argue that he doesn't have the spirit in Romans 7 because he's not bearing fruit. Now, I argue that he's still a believer. And you're like, whoa, mind blown. Hold on, how is that possible? Okay, he's still a believer, but he's under the law of the old covenant, frustrated by his inability and longing for the new covenant. He's a believer, but he's under the old covenant, longing for the new covenant. That's why he loves the law, right? He loves the law. He hates his sin. Yeah, those are godly desires. Why? Because he's a believer. Perfect but he's under the old covenant, so he doesn't have the ability of the Spirit to help him to fulfill it. Therefore, he's not bearing any fruit. That's why he's not a New Testament Christian. And that's why Romans 7, I would argue, is very misunderstood. And then it's not that about just like trying to figure out whether what's the right view of the passage. The point about Romans 7 is that it's not only misunderstood, it's therefore misapplied in our evangelical circles. And that's where it can be dangerous because this misunderstanding messes with our view of sanctification. It really does. It messes with our view of sanctification, especially since 
all other New Testament passage say something quite different when it comes to godly living. The standard is much different than what we see in Romans 7, if he's speaking as a Christian in Romans 7. Be careful not to use Romans 7 to build a theology that godly desires, without fruit, without actualizing them into fruit, are sufficient to indicate that you are a New Testament Christian. Be careful of that. The rest of the New Testament opposes that notion, and I would argue actually Romans 7 and 8 oppose that notion too when you actually properly understand them. We just saw this. What was the evidence of genuine faith in James chapter 2? It was his godly desires, right? No, it was his works, wasn't it? It was his works. That's how we know he had genuine faith. Not desire, not wanting to do the works, how about Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 10? We talked about this last time in the last sermon. I mean, literally in that passage in Second Peter 1, 10, he literally sets up for the question, how do I know that I'm saved? Right? I just pitched that to you earlier. How do I know that I'm saved? He just puts it this way. For this reason, rather, brothers, make haste to make your calling and election sure. In other words, hey, let's just make sure that you are called by God. Let's make sure that you are saved. How do we ensure that that's true? Well, he answers that right away. For by practicing these things, you certainly will not stumble. And then he tags on the end at any time. I mentioned that last time, how he says, you will certainly not, double Greek negative, stumble at any time. And he adds that line at any time at the end there. Practicing what things? Remember, this goes back to verses 5 and through 7 in that passage. It's the list of things that are listed earlier there, the excellence and the knowledge and the self-control and the perseverance and the godliness. These are actions, words, thoughts, motivations that model genuine biblical change. But you might be sitting there wondering, ah, I know. I know how to get you on this one. What about love? Aha! See, the Bible talks a lot about love and its fruit. Boom. Case ended. And listen, it's true. Don't get me wrong. Godly desire can be evidence of true salvation. Okay, I don't want to just, don't get me wrong on what I'm talking about here. Godly desire can be evidence of true salvation, but it must always be accompanied by fruit of biblical change. It must always be accompanied by fruit of biblical change. And therefore, if it must be followed by that, then that is really where the evidence lies. It's not in just the wanting of it. It's in the doing of it. But you're like, but love is a desire, isn't it? Oh, you know what I'm going to say. You know where I'm going to go with this. John chapter 14, verse 15. You could literally fill in the blanks with me. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's true. Love has aspects of desire and want. We see that in scripture a lot. But New Testament agape love New Testament agape love and its corresponding Old Testament ahava love are never disconnected from action. Not true biblical genuine love. It's never disconnected from action. It's always expressed in action. That's the true test of genuine love. How do you know it's genuine? You must see it at work. You must see it at work. For God loved the world in this way. By the way, I know sometimes our translations say, for God so loved the world, we make it think like, man, he loved us so much. That word is not so like as in so much. 
Our translations sometimes do a disservice to that. It's God loved the world in this way. That's how the word so is being used. God loved the world in this way, okay? And then here's how he did this. He emoted such great desire for us and felt so much for us that he exhausted himself by emoting. No, that's not what it says. God loved the world in this way that he gave. You hear the action? He gave his only son. You hear the sacrifice? That's not just desire. True biblical love is desire always followed by action. Always. True biblical love is desire always followed by action. Desire without action is not love. Desire without action is not love. You know this so well, especially if you're married. Honey, I'm so sorry that I forgot our anniversary date tonight. But I know this. I love you so much with greater desire and passion than you will ever know. It's the desire that counts, right? No, we would never treat our wives that way, right? Then why do we think that we can treat God that way and define his love that way? I love you, God. I just forgot about you a lot and don't follow and obey you very often. It's not the thought that counts or it's not the desire that counts, really, ultimately. It's the deed that follows, that shows whether it's genuine or not. It's what you do in response to your desires. That's how you know whether the love is truly love. And really, if your desire is genuine, you will always follow through, won't you? That makes sense. If the love is really genuine, you will always follow through. Those who say they love God have strong desires for Christ. If they don't follow through in action to bear fruit, then they don't love God. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Desire is not fruit-bearing on its own. By itself, it's not sufficient evidence for salvation. In fact, it's never presented as such in the Bible. Be wary of thinking that godly desire is even perhaps the best evidence of true, genuine faith. That's just not in the Bible. It's not the best evidence of true, genuine faith. It's not even sufficient evidence for true, genuine faith by itself. It must always be accompanied by fruit. Fruit is the best evidence of true, saving faith. That's misconception number seven. Now, misconception number eight. Misconception number eight. Sanctification is fueled by works. Sanctification is fueled by works. Okay, where are you going with this one? The reasoning kind of would go like this. If you accept what I said previously, okay, I get it. Desire by itself is not fruit. Got it? I accept that. Okay, good. Then... Uh, it may be easy for you to conclude that your sanctification is now more perfunctory, more driven by your works. You just got to do it. Just got to, I don't feel like it at all. I just got to do it. But that's a misconception as well because scripture depicts it quite differently. 
you know, sometimes you get the best golden nuggets of spiritual truth. I mean, it can be from a sermon. It could be from anywhere. But um, sometimes when you're just in random conversations with someone who's really learned in the scriptures and you're talking with them, you just kind of get like this passing, like, whoa, that was like a mind-blowing comment. That was awesome. And uh, these thoughts here that I have actually kind of spawned from a random conversation I had with my brother James, actually. This is so funny. And I love how some of the best kind of truths just kind of come from these casual, unsuspecting conversations. Turn your Bibles over to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. I want to show this to you. Romans 15. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, Romans, just kind of as a caveat here, Romans is really a book that has championed the power of the Spirit in the New Covenant. Almost second to none in on the New Testament books that we see in Scripture. And here we see the same terminology, this New Covenant terminology again, by the power of of the Holy Spirit. Paul indicates that through the power of the Spirit under the new covenant, hope will abound. Hope will abound. And here's the key. The mechanism that sparks that hope or sparks that power that was working that hope in you is not your works that just kind of like lift it up and I, okay, I got the spark going that, okay, yes, it's working because I just did enough. No, it's not your works, but it is believing. You see that in the text? With all joy and peace in believing. Paul is praying, wishing, pleading with God that the Roman people would be filled with joy and peace in believing in believing the implication is that joy and peace happen when people believe when people believe it's not divorced from faith faith is essential actually to the equation it is foundational it is that fuel in this way faith is the means by which you access joy peace and hope And that is all possible because of the power of the new covenant spirit. That's all possible because of his power. Not just because, well, I had such great faith, but because that faith is then what, (laughs) I could say it this way, activates that power of the spirit in your life in sanctification. When you are in full faith, that's where you have full ability through the spirit. Be mindful that you will not access that power when you live in unbelief, when you live in unbelief. You must believe to access that ability granted to you by the Spirit to abound in joy, peace, and hope. And when faith fuels sanctification, listen, sanctification takes off. It takes off. Works are not the fuel. They're just merely the response to a life of faith. They're merely the outcome of that faith. Another passage that certainly communicates this is 2 Peter chapter 1. Go over there. I know we were there last time. We're going to look at this 
a little bit more in depth in a, a couple different verses here. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 5. Now we're going to actually see that list here. This list of character qualities that describe the Christian. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 5. And also this same thing, applying all diligence, you could translate it, or maybe haste, in your faith supply excellence, and in your excellence knowledge, and knowledge self-control, and in self-control endurance, and in endurance godliness, and in godliness brotherly love, and in brotherly love agape love. It's the last one, agape love. We haven't read these verses actually in this sermon or even in the previous sermon, but I've alluded to them a couple times. Remember, this is the list of Christian virtues that if you look down at verse 10, we went to verse 10 last sermon. This is the list of virtues that we need to practice to ensure that we are truly in Christ. This is how that's modeled. The more diligently, the more diligently that we actually pursue these things, the more we increase our confidence in our own salvation that we have in God. And whenever we do these things, we will certainly, he says in verse 10, not stumble at any time. And the assumption is you're doing these things by the power of the Spirit in the new covenant as mentioned in verses 3 and 4. But notice where it begins. Notice what he says in verse 5. Supply to your faith. See that? Supply to your faith. Peter is assuming that you already have faith. It is the bedrock that's already been laid. So because you already have that faith, this is something where you supplement these things on top of that. They are not the starter to this engine. They are the supplement to it. Sanctification does not begin in a vacuum. And then you just fill that vacuum with some good things and then just magically sanctification happens. That's not how it works. It begins with faith in the promises of God, faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the motor that you really work with every day as a Christian, and then you exercise that faith so that you may grow in all of the things that God wants you to grow in. Then sanctification takes off. Be diligent in faith. Start there. And then be diligent to supplement these virtues to that faith. Sanctification is not fueled by your works. It's fueled by a life of faith. And kind of as a caveat, because I, I'll be kicking myself if I don't actually mention this, um, another casual conversation, one of those random golden nugget moments, right, I had with a learned man in the Word of God is Dr., with Dr. Stuart Scott, actually, who I had the privilege of working alongside with for several years there at the Master's University. He mentioned one time, and I think perhaps this was like at a lunch in the cafeteria, so you can imagine how casual and random that is. He mentioned how our sins of omission— lead to our sins of commission. Our sins of omission lead to our sins of commission. Now, it might be easy for that to just kind of blow by you and be like, oh, yeah, that's cool. Very good. Hold on. That's super profound. Let me unpack that for you just in case that's not clear. Sins of commission are things that we do that we shouldn't do. Things that we do that we shouldn't do. These are the bad things. This is the bad list. Lying. Cheating, stealing, sinful anger, lust. Sins of omission are things that we 
don't do, that we should do. We omit them from our lives, and we shouldn't have done that. Sins of omission, things that we don't do that we should do. Worshiping Christ, loving one another from a true heart. Listen, our sins of omission, our sins of omission, not worshiping Christ, not loving, not giving and preferring one another, are what fuel our sins of commission. They're what fuel our sins of commission. Lying, cheating, stealing, pride, selfishness. In other words, when you are looking for the genesis of a sin in your life and you're wondering, how did I get myself into this kind of idolatry? How did I get myself into this mess? You need to look further back beyond your sins of commission. You need to go further back than that. Very often, if not always, you have been practicing something that you shouldn't do because you have not been practicing something that you should do. You are engaged in sins of commission because you've neglected vigilance over your sins of omission. And too often, we're only alerted to the fact of the problem of sin in our lives when we are doing things that we shouldn't be doing instead of catching ourselves when we are not doing the things that we should be doing. You hear that? We're focused too much on like, I, you know, the putting off. What was wrong with that? What did I do wrong in the putting off? Well, what were you doing wrong with the putting on? Are you lying? When did you stop being proactive to speak truth in every conversation? When was that intentional thought taken away? Are you sinfully depressed? When did you stop pursuing a daily trust in the sovereignty of God? Are you sinfully angry at someone? When did you stop pursuing your brother or sister in Christ-like love and sacrifice and giving? Our sins of commission spawn in the seedbed of our sins of omission. And one of the most basic sins of omission, one of the most basic ones, is lack of faith. It's lack of faith, isn't it? It's one of the most core issues that the Bible's talking about. Listen, to avoid many sins of commission, you want to avoid many sins of commission? You cannot simply just try harder with some good behaviors. You must watch out for these sins of omission, like lack of faith. It's one of them. A person devoted to a proactive life of faith will avoid many a sin of commission. You must pursue a life of faith. From there, the power of the Spirit has the greatest potential in your fight against sin. Sanctification is not works-driven. It's not fueled by your works. Even though works must be the result, it is faith-driven. That's misconception number eight. Misconception number nine. You're like, oh my goodness, we're only on this one? We still have another one after this? Don't worry, these will go faster, okay? Well, hopefully. Um, The last one will go faster than this one. Okay, misconception number nine. God won't give me more than I can handle. Oh, this one's a common one. Now, to be clear, this may not be a misconception for you if you understand this correctly from the Bible, but most often, I think we tend to misunderstand this one. 
least how I've heard it. And I've understood the, misunderstood this one too, many a times. It's all in how you define the what of what we can handle. It's all in how you define that. Often we imagine that God won't put us in situations that will be too much for us. And when we think about it, we're more thinking about it from a mentally, emotionally, or physically. Like God's not going to put me into an overwhelming circumstance that's going to overdo it in my emotions, in my mental state, or in my physical capability. But evidently from Scripture, that's not true. Some of you understand this actually from personal experience. And so maybe sometimes you're wondering, like, how does this comport with the Bible? How does this fit? It doesn't make any sense. Well, Paul did too. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Turn your Bibles over to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. He depicts this. This is actually when you actually look at just the plain wording of the text. You have a good translation in front of you on this verse. The wording is quite striking. Chapter 1, verse 8, 2 Corinthians. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, on behalf of our tribulation, which happened in Asia, that, he says, we were burdened excessively beyond our ability. You hear that? Beyond our ability. Oh, okay. Well, he was just kind of stressed out. Hold on. Look at the end of this. So that we despaired even... This, I'm just literally translating from the Greek here. He literally despaired of even to live. He literally despaired even to live. Listen, that kind of terminology is suicidal terminology. I'm not saying that Paul was tempted to commit suicide. I don't think he was really struggling with that necessarily. He wanted his life perhaps to end. It's over. It's like Elijah in 1 Kings 19. Lord, kill me now. I don't want to go through this anymore. Notice that strong language he uses. We were burdened beyond our ability, and we were in despair, ex opereo. Ex opereo technically is like, almost like we were completely at a loss. There was no reference point to even live anymore. We couldn't even see living in sight anymore. At the point of total crumbling, and I think from the context, you can be very confident that the crumbling is emotionally, mentally, physically, we are done. We are spent. Paul was burdened beyond what he could handle in this mortal, failing body. And so too, God may send you trials that are too much for you emotionally, mentally, and physically. And some of you are like, yeah, I've had that. But, but, there is another part to this that we must know and that we must proclaim because it's biblical. God also never gives you more than you can handle in your temptation against sin. Wow, that's a blessing. And there's the difference in your temptation against sin. Aha, that's good. Otherwise, we will have pulled out the rug from pretty much everything that we've talked about tonight and from the last sermon, too. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. And some of you have this memorized by heart. If you've worked with counseling other people, you probably want to have this one in your back pocket. And uh, it's really good to analyze this verse because there's a lot packed in here. 
And I know we're running out of time here. Hopefully very common to many of you. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. Common to man is just one word in Greek, human. It's like human temptation, right? Things that humans deal with all the time. No temptation has overtaken you except that is common to man. But God is faithful. What's he faithful in? Well, he will not allow you to be tempted, listen to this, beyond what you are able. Same terminology that Paul used, but two different contexts. You see that? But with the temptation, he will give you the way of escape. Maybe your translation says that. So that you may be able to endure it. Now, again, sometimes this verse is thought to suggest that God will never give you more than you can handle emotionally, physically, or mentally. But we just saw in 2 Corinthians 1, that's not true. Actually, when you look at the context of this verse, this is, this is in the context of the whole chapter of chapter 10, Israel failing in the wilderness with the grievous sins and temptations to idolatry. That's sinning. That's temptation to sin. So it's speaking about that, temptation to sin. It's not talking about God giving you, uh, he won't give you overwhelming trials. So 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is promising that under the new covenant, God always provides a way out or a way of escape, as some translations say. But actually, I need to make a little correction there because that translation might be a little misguiding or it might misdirect you because the word is ekbasis, and it's not really the way out of the problem as though it's like you're going along through the trial and you're like, oh, trap door opens up and you jump out, right? It's like, oh, we got out of the trial. Good. No, no, no. The word, the word here actually means, actually tra- it's actually literally is defined an outcome, a goal. It's actually at the end of the trial. And so what we see here is that this isn't the way out of the trial like a trap door. This is the way through the trial. You see that? God's not promising you to rescue you from the trial. He's promising to give you the way through it so that you will be able to endure it. Do you hear the difference? He hasn't given you a way out of the problem. He's given you a way through it. This notion is actually further reinforced by the last words of the verse, so that you would be able to endure it. Why would he say, but with the temptation, God will provide you the way of escape out of the problem while you're in the middle of it, just so that you may be able to endure it? That doesn't make any sense. He gave you the way to the very end so that you would be able to endure it. That's the power of the new covenant. Under this covenant, God promises to always afford you the way to resist temptation. That's such a blessing. That's such a blessing for us. And a quick moment for some implications. It's easy to equate, okay, in life, stress, stress with sinful worry. Anytime we see someone distressed, I think it's easy to assume that sometimes. I know I have. I've assumed that of people before. It's true people who are stressed can be sinfully worried. That's true. That can very often be true. But we also see from Paul's life that distress beyond even one's ability is not necessarily a sinful thing. It's not meaning that they're going through a sinful situation. You know this passage well. Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing. Mary Manao. That's the word for worry. It's funny. It sounds so like joy, like joy, joyous, like Mary. Yay. No, it's worry. Mary Manao. 
A Christian should never be worried about anything. We kind of just, that's what it seems to say. So he shouldn't be worried about anything. It would seem that way, except Paul boasts of his own worry of the, for the churches of God in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28. He says, I have worry for the churches of God. He commends Timothy as someone who will be genuinely worried for the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2, verse 20. And other exa- examples of godly worry include 1 Corinthians 7, verses 32 through 33, where someone's worried for the Lord in a good way. They want to serve the Lord. They're worried about him, not for a spouse. Or chapter 12, verse 25, the members of the body of Christ are worried about one another, making sure to protect one another. And then Galatians 4, 19 also alludes to this as well. And besides the Galatians 4, 19 passage, all of them use the same word, Mary Manao, which is what Paul uses in Philippians 4, 6, be worried for nothing, be anxious for nothing. That's why Philippians 4, 6 must be taken in its own context. It's not just a blanket statement for everything in life. Paul is talking about a very specific kind of worry happening among the Philippians. It's a sinful kind of worry in that context. Be anxious for nothing in this context because that's a sinful kind of worry. But stress and concern for ministry, for people, as mentioned in all the passages that I just listed, that's biblical. That's not sinful. Being stressed is not always sin, but on the flip side, we need to hear this too. Those of you who easily get stressed or have very stressful lives, um, have distresses in your lives, when you are stressed, you open yourself up for a much greater potential to sin because stress accelerates sinful stress. That's just the nature of life and the human heart because your mental, emotional, and physical state are under duress and you will feel the relentless pressure to cave to temptation. We must be careful to approach our stressed brothers and sisters with a heart of compassion and help, not necessarily quick to just judge their heart as to whether it's sinful or not. We can come alongside, and in time, we might be able to help them to evaluate that, but we want to be careful not to just judge that ahead of time. We, we can come alongside with compassion and help. Nevertheless, we also can be mindful of the fact of the juggernaut that they might be undergoing and that they're in a harder spiritual battle than most people might be to maintain a spirit-filled walk under the pressure of that stress. And so we want to also help them make sure that they can evaluate and under their own heart know for certain that they're walking in the Spirit of God as best as they can know possible. Furthermore, be careful not to blame physical problems for your spiritual responses. God has given you all things for godly living, even if you have severe physical challenges. You hear that? God has given you all things for godly living, even if you have severe physical challenges. And be sure also that you're not waiting for the trial to end before you start responding righteously now. God wants to train you to respond rightly in this trial. Don't waste that opportunity. Don't waste that opportunity. You know, in, in, uh, the, in 2 Corinthians 1, you don't have to go back there because we're running out of time. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 9, Paul's response to his overwhelming circumstance, you know what his response was? This is great. He says, but we ourselves had the sentence of death on us. We had the sentence of death on us. So that, why? We would not trust in ourselves, but would trust in God who raises from the dead, who brings back life from the dead. True. Stress was overwhelming for Paul. It overwhelmed him to the point of nearly dying. But it didn't determine his spiritual response. 
he still responded in the power of the Spirit, even when overwhelmed. It's amazing. It's an amazing example. You too can do that. You too can do that. You're like, well, it's Paul, though. He's unique. Don't don't glorify Paul. He had the same spirit of power that you have. You can do this too. God does give us more than we can handle often, physically, emotionally, mentally, but it's never an excuse for sin. You hear that? It's never an excuse for sin because he never gives us more than we can handle in our striving against sin. That is misconception number nine. And finally, with that is misconception number 10. And this one's going to go really, really fast, okay? Because we don't, I don't have a whole lot on this anyways. Right? Misconception number 10. The goal of sanctification is self-sufficiency. The goal of sanctification is self-sufficiency. When we learn something new in almost any activity in life, we make it our aim to learn how to do things for ourselves, to become better at something, to be skilled at it. The goal of learning to ride a bike is not to learn how to ride with training wheels. The goal is to remove the training wheels. The goal when learning how to bowl is not to keep the bumper rails up the entire time, but it's to remove the bumper rails, right? Some of us still bowl with bumper rails. But when it comes to sanctification, our perspective has to be completely opposite to that. Our goal is not to learn how to walk in sanctification by the Spirit so that we can learn how to do this for ourselves, on our own, as though the Spirit is some kind of training wheels for us. The goal is to learn sanctification in the Spirit, in the Spirit. The goal is to stay in the Spirit for the rest of our lives. That's because sanctification is not about self-betterment. Sanctification is not about self-betterment like many other things in our lives that we, we learn. Or how to be, be skilled in the, and never use this terminology please, the art of sanctification, right? As though there's some kind of like self-betterment in that, right? The art of sanctification. It's not that way. Sanctification is all about divine dependency. It's not just a skill that you add to your tool belt. The more dependent you are on the Spirit, the more you are progressing in sanctification. And in that way, listen, God gets the glory, not you, not me. God gets the glory because it's not about self-betterment, is it? It's about Christ's exaltation. He must increase. We must decrease. Your sanctification, this is huge, your sanctification is only as good as your dependency on the Spirit you can just take that away tonight, that'll be huge. Your sanctification is only as good as your dependency on the Spirit. That's it. Don't try to get to a point where you can do this on your own. That's just walking in the flesh. And we know where that always leads. It leads to sin. So let's recap. Misconception number six. I'm going to recap these here really quick for you. Not sinning is fruit-bearing. Not sinning is fruit-bearing. No, we need to put on Christ-likeness. That's fruit-bearing. Misconception number seven, godly desire by itself is fruit. No, actually, godly desire without fruit is not fruit. 
The Bible never describes it in isolation from fruit. It never exalts it as the number one reason as to why you are saved. Your godly desires must bring forth fruit to demonstrate its authenticity. The evidence is ultimately in your changed life. That's the evidence, not the desires that undergird the change, even though those desires are important. It's not, under, it's not based upon those desires. Misconception number eight, sanctification is fueled by works. No, actually, the engine of sanctification is actually a life of genuine faith and the practice and the growth of faith. Avoid the sin of omission of a lack of faith, and you will avoid many sins of commission. Misconception number nine, God won't give me more than I can handle. Well, nope, God also, God often gives his people more than they can handle, like he did with Paul. But he will never give you more than you can handle in your fight against sin. That much he does promise you, and that's a blessing. Overwhelming stress is not always sin. Neither does physical suffering ever determine your spiritual responses against sin. Even the greatest of Christian sufferers can walk in the spirit in any response in life. Misconception number 10, the goal of sanctification is self-sufficiency. No, the goal is actually spirit dependency. The goal is to keep, you, to keep the training wheels on and that way he gets the glory and not you. You might look ridiculous with those training wheels on, but that's okay because he gets the glory, not you. Now, I know many of you might still be wondering, yeah, but how do I walk in the spirit? I thought you were going to address that more directly in this sermon. I know, I ran out of time. I'm sorry. But seriously, we could do a full series on that. That's a huge question, and it's very, very much a, a, a wonderful question. It's the right question to be asking. And I'm sure Pastor Steve has some excellent material he has already addressed on that subject before. I'm not punting to him. Okay, I too actually would be happy to dive into something like that more extensively in the future. There's a lot I actually want to say on that topic that I just didn't have time for tonight. But to briefly answer the question, walking in the Spirit is all about three things, okay? Just take these away. Three things. One, a life, it's a life of worship. Worship, faith, submission to God. Worship, faith, submission to God. When I look at all the passages that talk about spirit-filled living in the New Testament, those three areas of life pop up in pretty much all of them. Worship, faith, submission to God. Is your life about worshiping Jesus Christ as he wants to be worshiped? You should ask yourself that on a regular basis. Are you walking in faith and trusting his word? And are you submitting to his will no matter the outcome? If you practice these, these, these three things, you are fulfilling many, if not all, of the wonderful passages that speak to what it means to walk in the Spirit. You really are. And there's more that I want to say on that. But please take these truths with you, and we can develop that later at another time. Okay, let's pray. Thank you, Father. For the power of your spirit to give us what we need for godly living. May these truths be planted deep within us and help us to avoid the fallacies of sanctification is simply about not sinning or that godly desires are all we really need as evidence of salvation or that you won't give us overwhelming trials. Actually, the word of God says otherwise. But we also cling to these promises. That you will never give us more than we can handle in our fight against sin. Ah, oh, that's such a blessing. Thank you for that promise and for that ability. That sin is not inevitable. 
that the Spirit can help us defeat any and every sin in our lives. And that when we walk in the Spirit, we are not walking in the flesh. Help us to cling hard to those truths. We know from the Word of God that salvation is a unilateral gift from you. It came from you on your own initiative and has we have no part to play in it. That's what unilateral is. But we do have a part to play in our sanctification. And we pray, place the weight of the responsibility on our shoulders so that we may walk and move and act in the Spirit. The onus is on us, and we know that, O oh God. But remind us also that the power is coming from you, and that is why you receive all the glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.